we are continuing a series called The Bible, A Unified Story Leading to Jesus. And we have been... Um, We've been, we, we, we started at the beginning and we're, we're getting close to the end. We only have a couple weeks left, so I'm not going to recap the whole thing. I'm going to show you our timeline here in a minute where we're at. Uh, but first, I want you to think about this word, betrayal, okay? Betrayal. It's a heavy word, isn't it? It's a heavy word. Even that word, when I say the word betrayal, it's hard to not immediately think of experiences you've had in your life where somebody has betrayed you. And I want you to just think about the concept of betrayal and why does it hurt so bad? Why does it hurt so bad when somebody betrays you? It's a heavy topic, and I'm get, so I'm going to give you a, a light example, okay? So I was trying to think of examples of betrayal in my life. I'm like, I'm not sharing these examples. Like, these are the most painful experiences of my life. So I thought of one funny one. I was in fifth grade, thereabouts, and my best friend as a child, he was going to pet sit for our house. So we were on vacation, and he was going to come over and pet sit for our dog and cat or whatever we, you know, whatever we had at the time. And when, when somebody pet sits for you, you put a level of trust in that person, don't you? You give them a key to your house, they got to run to the whole house. They could do anything they want in your house. I mean, your fridge is available to them, your television. I mean, it's all there for them. So my... my Great best friend, uh, he pets it for us, and back home. nothing, nothing wrong, nothing out of out of the ordinary. And then it was uh, sometime after that, maybe a week or so, he he had a conversation with me, and there was something he needed to confess. So he some um, uh, something on his heart that he needed to he needed to was weighing heavily on him. So in fifth grade, uh, we both liked the same girl. We both liked the same girl. And uh, my, my, my wife's in, uh, working in the nursery today, so you know, I don't want to get too jealous or anything, but I believe that I was actually going out with this girl in fifth grade, okay? So we were, we were going out, and, uh, which, which basically means I wrote her a note at one point that said, you know, will you be my girlfriend, yes or no, for a month, you know, we were going out. Uh, so my best friend also liked the same girl. So he tells me that while he was pet-sitting, he found my fifth grade diary. Yes, I had a fifth grade diary. Uh, he found it, and uh, he opened it, and he read it, and he took <laughs> a page that I had written about this girl, and he tore it out, and he threw it in the sewer, the sewer hole outside of my house because uh, he was, you know, emotionally distraught by it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny to think about, one, that I had a diary, and, and two, that my friend actually did that while, while petting. And then he apologized for it, right? He could have went on with his life. He could have went to the grave, and I would have never have known what happened to that page of my fifth grade diary. But there's, so there's something about, now, is that really a betrayal? I mean, in fifth grade, yeah. In fifth grade level, that's a betrayal, right? That's, so props to my friend that he, he was convicted and he wanted to make things right and he apologized. But there's, there's a reason that he had to apologize. He knew he did something wrong. He knew he betrayed trust. To go into my diary while he was pet sitting? And there's a reason I remember it. As funny of a story as that is, you have a collection of memories of your childhood, and I remember that, because trust was betrayed. When we experience betrayal, 
we have trust with somebody else and it's broken, that leaves a mark. That leaves a mark in our heads and in our hearts, and it's something that we're going to carry with us. Now, oh, I'm not sure what happened to my, uh, my slide. There we go. Okay. This is the timeline we've been working through. It is a very ugly timeline. I don't know what non-artistic person made this. It was me that made it. Um, this is the timeline that we've been working through. And there's these stars in the middle are where we're at right now. This is the biblical timeline, starting with creation, ending with revelation, heaven, the new earth. And we're in the middle here. We're the church. Now, these stars are these, these, these major events that happened in the history of God's people as a result of betrayal. Result of betrayal. You can see up to the timeline, this whole series, there's been a lot of work to get to this point. There's been a lot of provision by God. He gave people the promised land. Remember the 40 years in the wilderness. Remember the 400 years of slavery. All the years that they had to get through to finally get to the promised land. You finally got what you always wanted. And now what? And now what? Well, they end up losing it all. They end up losing it all because of betrayal. The kingdom fractures in two, and then these, the, you, you'll see, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom gets completely taken over by Assyria. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom gets completely taken over Babylon, by Babylon, and there's no more Israel. There's no more people of God living in the promised land. Everything for generations upon generations upon generations that had been promised and provided was now completely gone. And it's because of betrayal. It's because of betrayal. Now, this is the picture of how things started off between God and his people. It was a beautiful there was a wedding between God and his people. We talked about that a few weeks ago. They had a covenant agreement, much like a marriage covenant agreement between God and the Old Testament people of Israel. This is still God's desire for his people today. This is still God's desire for us today is to be in a marriage relationship with God. Check this passage out from Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah is a prophet in the middle of the timeline, and he is warning Judah, if you don't repent, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose everything. You're going to lose everything. So he's reminiscing. This is like God picking up the old wedding album. If those of you that are married, been married for a you know, a long time, you still have a paper wedding album before everything was digital. Some of you have a VHS tape of your, of your wedding. You know, you, you, you know you've been married a long time if you got a VHS tape of your wedding. I have a DVD of mine, and the young whippersnappers today are like, what's a DVD? <laughs> uh, this is God reminiscing. He's looking back at his old wedding tape, his old photo album. And, and it's, uh, this is what he tells Jeremiah. He says, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. And you followed me through the wilderness. Through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord. The first fruits of his harvest. Israel was God's bride. And he was the husband. So how do we get from this beautiful picture that God is reminiscing about to this fractured marriage? 
this fractured relationship between God and his people. Jeremiah actually says in chapter 3 that God divorced Israel, the northern ten tribes, when, Israel, when Assyria took them over. He had to. Betrayal. Now, this is the divided kingdom. This is the exile. How did this happen? God's people cheated God. And they cheated on God over and over and over again until it fractured the marriage that they had made at Mount Sinai. What went wrong? I'm going to switch back to the other mic. I can hear this one. All right. What went wrong? We're going to look into this question. What went wrong? But first, I want you to know, if you've been betrayed, and we all have, and some to more degrees than another, and I know this even this topic, it can bring up a lot of hard memories. Know that if you've been betrayed, if you've been cheated on, if you've been stabbed in the back, God has too, and he understands. He relates. He is a relational God who has experienced the pain you have experienced. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed by people that he loves dearly. He understands. But we're going to look at this question, what went wrong? We find this picture of the broken relationship in Jeremiah as well. After God reminisces about the wedding, just a few verses later, we see these passages. These are rated R passages, okay? So brace yourself. But this is the vivid imagery. This is the vivid imagery of what God's feeling when his people cheat on him over and over and over again. Jeremiah 2, 20 to 25, it says, Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. He's talking to his bride right now. How can you say, I am not defiled, I have not run after the bales? Those are the other idols of the day. See how you behaved in the valley. Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat. Who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry, but you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. This is an emotional passage from God's heart, isn't it? He is hurting. He has been betrayed. And we often see God as a stuffy rule maker. God's up there making all the rules. He gave us an exam, and he's grading it. And he's, oh, you didn't do that right. You didn't do this right. This gives a very different picture of God. This gives us a picture of God who desires to be in an intimate relationship with us to be in a marriage covenant relationship with us, and his heart breaks when we disobey. His heart breaks when we run after other idols. What went wrong? What went wrong? So we've, we've said God can relate when we're betrayed. He can. He can absolutely relate. But we also have to know and remember that we betrayed God that we are the bride that chased after other idols. That in our sin, we rebelled against God and we said, God, I love these other idols better than you. I love these other spouses better than you, God. And I'm gonna chase after them. That's the first step of accepting the gospel. The good news of Jesus is realizing I need forgiveness. 
I've sinned against God, and I need his forgiveness. So the question then is, and we'll look at this as we go through the rest of this sermon, is does God even want to reconcile with us? Does God even want to reconcile with us if we have cheated on God over and over and over again? And if so, how is that even possible? How is that even possible? So what we like to do at Mosaic, I know we have a lot of new people here, and you may have never done this before, uh, but we like to take one more break uh, in, our, in our time as we've set up what the sermon is about. Uh, please know we're not asking you to share anything deep here. I don't want you even to share examples of your own betrayals unless you have a funny story like mine. But I want you to think, talk about this concept of why does betrayal hurt so bad? Betrayal hurts. What is it about betrayal that hurts so bad? And then number two, and we'll get into this as the sermon goes on, what excites you most about heaven? And if you're not a believer here today, you're like, I don't even believe in heaven. That's totally okay. One, you can listen in to others, or two, uh, think about if the concept were true, but you don't believe in it, uh, that's okay. If it were true, what would get you excited about it? Let's talk about that for five or six minutes, and then I'll come back up to finish up the sermon. All right, so last week we talked about what's called the United Kingdom and it was a very brief period of time in Israel's history that the nation was actually a nation and had a king, and it was actually united. King Saul, David, Solomon, it was very brief. And this is how things were meant to be. This is how they were supposed to be. This marriage between God and his people, God was going to take care of his people, and they were going to be faithful to him. That was really the basics of it. And, and so we're asking what happened. What happened from here to get to this fractured state that we're looking at today? Within that covenant, that marriage agreement, there were basically two main things that the people of Israel had to do. One was not to worship idols. One was, one was not to go off and put, uh, chase after other gods that they thought were more God than God was and put their allegiance with, with another God. And we do that today, too. It's not in worshiping uh, an, an actual maybe other religion's idol, but anything we put above God, anything that we serve and, and go after instead of going after God, anything that we is a, a chronic sin problem in our life, these are idols that we struggle with. And so the second one is regarding oppression and justice. Um, there is a ton in the Old Covenant about God's heart for justice and his heart to care for the oppressed. And he said, seek justice, care for the oppressed, and if you don't, you will lose this land. Guess what happened? They didn't seek justice, they didn't care for the oppressed, they chased after other gods, and they lost their land. All right, so 1 Kings eleven thirty three 33 kind of tells us what happened from number three, King Solomon, to where we end up with this fractured state in Israel. This is Old Testament. This is uh, pre-Jesus, probably about 1,000 years or so, off the top of my head, before Jesus. So that gives you a little bit of a timeline here. 1 Kings eleven thirty three 33 says, I will do this. God's talking about taking Israel away and, and splitting the kingdom up. He says, I will do this because they... Israel have forsaken me and have worshipped, and he's Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. And this is speaking about Solomon's reign. At the end of Solomon's life, not a good dude. He had a bajillion wives. He worked, they all worshiped a bajillion different gods, 
And Solomon went down that same path and worshiped all these other gods, cheating on God himself. And this is, why, this is exactly why things split into two. And so we have this awesome picture here with uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Of the, uh, they definitely look like the flannel graph, you know, guys. If you if you grew up in uh, Baptist Sunday school, that you know you stick on your. That's what that's what these guys look like. I, I love Google images, so just. Okay, um, Re- Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They can become the kings of this fractured kingdom. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Jeroboam was one of his officials. It's confusing that their names sound almost exactly the same, so you can never remember who is who. Uh, all you need to remember is that both are super wicked, and um, they both were bad news. They were both really, really wicked. And it's crazy because Rehoboam was David's grandson, and you go, man, two generations, and we're gone. We're done already, right? So the history from here forward is that Israel, the northern ten tribes, they just stayed wicked. You read about their ki- the history of their kings in the Bible, wicked, 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 and they were the first to go. Assyria came and got them. Judah was very wicked as well, but they had righteous kings every so often that would bring them back to God. Kings you may have heard of like Josiah, Hezekiah, who, who rediscovered the Bible, and they said, we're not living according to the Bible. We've gone astray. We need to come back to God. And so Judah uh, stayed in the covenant for longer, but eventually they too fell to Babylon in 586 B.C. Now, in Jesus' day, when we fast forward to when we read in the New Testament, you've heard of the Samaritans before. The Samaritan woman at the well, you've heard the parable of the Samaritan. Well, the Samaritans were that whole northern ten of Israel. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were partially Jewish, but they had intermingled for so many generations with the the rest of the nations that they no longer were really Jews anymore. They were their own ethnicity. And there was extreme racial and ethnic hatred in the first century between Jews and Samaritans. And it started here with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And so there's this long, intense history of racism between these two groups of people, and it plays a key role in Jesus' ministry, and it plays a key role in who we're supposed to be as the New Testament church. But it started here. It started here. All right, so we have Isaiah and Jeremiah on our timeline here in the middle, and they are giving warning after warning after warning to the people of Israel. Stop betraying God, stop cheating on God, stop cheating on God, or you are going to lose your land. And as we said, they kept cheating on God, they kept cheating on God, they kept cheating on God. So we're back to Jeremiah 2, 20 to 25. We've already read this passage. I won't read through the whole thing. But there's a ton of verses that we could read about idolatry in the Old Testament, ways that God's people cheated on him. I highlighted that last verse, verse 25 in yellow. It says, but you said it's no use. I love foreign gods, and I must go after them. At least they're being honest, right? <laughs> like, you know, a lot of us today, we're like, oh, I love you, God. You're great. But then during the week, we're like, no, you're not great. All of my, all my foreign gods are way better. And, but, but we hide it. We put a nice face over it. At least they're being honest about their betrayal and their cheating on God. They can't help themselves at this point. And this is, a, like I said, it's a vividly painful metaphor of our relationship with God when we sin and when we go astray. 
But there's something that we need to get here from this passage about idolatry. And, and I relate to it mostly um, as a metaphor to addiction. And if you, if you think about addiction, addiction, and, and most of our sins really are a type of addiction. We may not call it that clinically, but most sins are things that we, uh, we, we feel like we need them, right? We sin, we rebel against God because we need this thing. And if you think about addiction, you can look at someone else's addiction, and when you look at someone else's addiction, what kind of thoughts do you have? You can look at someone else's addiction of something you don't struggle with, and what kind of thoughts do you have about them? You might think things like, why are you destroying your life? Why are you destroying your children's lives? Why are you destroying your future? Why are you being so irresponsible with your money? Can't you see what it's doing to you? Right? You can see that when you look at other people's lives. And we have friends and family that struggle with addictions, and we grieve for them, and we can't understand why they can't see it the way we see it, which, which is true. Like, we're not addicted to that thing. So we see it in the true way. But now look at your addiction, your addictions. And you may have clinical addictions or you just have sin addiction. And you sure find ways to justify those addictions, don't you? Don't I? Don't we? The things that I'm addicted to, I go, oh, yeah, but I kind of I need that. I, this, it kind of makes, I kind of have to have this. Like, God, you'll understand, right? Like, the, the way, you know, it's better. I kind of need this thing. And in fact, if we're honest, we would probably say what the Israelites would say. I love this thing. I actually love it. And I feel like it loves me. And I need it. And there's other people trying to tell us. Could be people in this room. It could be your family trying to tell you, you need to get rid of that thing. And you're like, I just can't. I just can't get rid of that thing. So there's, there's a way that idolatry hooks us in. And, and, and this is where the people of Israel find themselves. They are so hooked in at this point with worshiping these other idols and the lifestyle and the practices that went along with them. So idolatry is the, is the number one reason they got kicked out of the, of the promised land. The second one was injustice, was injustice. And I want to read to you Isaiah 1, 11 to 17. Isaiah is the other primary prophet during this time saying, you need to repent of your sins or you're going to lose the land. Check out Isaiah 1. If you've never read this or thought about it, this will blow your mind. This will blow your mind if you let it. Okay, this is God talking to the people of Israel about church, about church. They did church a little different than us, but this is God talking to his people about church. You'd think God would be pleased that people are in church, right? We don't think that. God's pleased we're in church. Well, let's see what God says. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices... What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. These are ways that they worship, sacrificial system. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Those are all their church services. Those are all their church holidays that they observe. God said, I can't bear them. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. That hits hard if you go to church and you say, wow, God only cares about all this stuff we do as Christians. Worshiping, praising, preaching, festivals, holidays, if we also care about justice. And if you have a different way of reading that, let me know. But that's pretty obvious to me. I don't know another way to get, to get around what the Bible's saying there. That's biblical truth. God only cares about our worship if we also are caring for the oppressed. If we also are seeking justice where there's injustice, if we're caring for the fatherless, if we're caring for the widow. And this is all throughout the Old Testament. Amos 5, 21 to 24 says the same thing. Micah 6, 6 to 8 says the same thing. It was the second reason that they were kicked out of the promised land. And I just need to say this, that there is many modern Christians today, many modern Christians today who say they believe in the Bible, and yet they are not passionate about justice. Not only are they not passionate, but somehow, somehow, we have Christians that are even anti-justice. Christians who will say things to a church who cares about justice, or to Christians who care about justice and say, you're being political. Oh, that's socialism. You're replacing the Bible. No, we're living out the Bible, okay? If we believe in the Bible, we have to be passionate about injustice. We have to be passionate about racism. We have to be passionate about the systems of racism that have built the inequities that are in our culture today. We can't just say Jesus loves you and then move on. We have to live out his kingdom the way God always intended it to be, and we have to right the wrongs that were wrong, not just ignore them and act like they never existed. Amen? If we don't, God does not care about our worship. That's not my words. Those are his words. And I, I think the American church needs a serious wake-up call to look back at the Old Testament of what is on God's heart and why they got kicked out of the promised land. So we have these generations of betrayal, generations of idolatry, generations of injustice. And again, it leads us to ask, will God take us back. Will God take us back? He wanted to take us back then, and he wants to take us back now. Generations of unfaithfulness, but guess what? God remains faithful, and I take so much comfort in that, because the world is a dark place. I struggle to open up the news app on my phone, because I, I told Victoria this week, I said, when I want to feel depressed, when I'm just like, yeah, I think I'll feel depressed today, I just open up my news app, and I'm like, yep, I'm depressed now. <laughs> the world is a dark place, and it feels like it's getting darker and darker in so many different ways. There's statistics of people leaving the church in droves, leaving their faith in Christ in droves, and they're chasing idols. 
There's no hope in those idols, but they're going after them like there is. The hopelessness of idolatry. And I take great comfort knowing that God is still faithful. God is still faithful even in the darkness. That timeline continues, and we are part of it, and it's never gone all that well on the timeline. And God remained faithful to redeeming us and to taking us back again and again and again and again. And so we're going to wrap up here with a New Testament image that takes us all the way back to that bride from Jeremiah 2. John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus. This is the Jesus we're anticipating with Advent. This is the Jesus born into a manger who came to Jerusalem, God in the flesh, to save the world. And John the Baptist, talking about Jesus, says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The bridegroom there is Jesus. The friend who attends the bridegroom, that's John, waits and listens for him. And he's full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. John is pointing at Jesus, saying, that is the groom, and the church, the people of God, are the bride. Where have you heard that before? That's what God always wanted for his relationship with his people. This is the second to last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 21, the Bible ends in Revelation 22. And Revelation 21 is talking about the new heaven and the new earth. It's talking about what heaven will be like. And it says, one of the seven angels came and said to me, this is John who's seeing this, different John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Jerusalem? That's the Jerusalem from Jeremiah 2 and 3. That was the prostitute. That was the swift she-camel cheating on God over and over and over again. That's the Jerusalem we're grafted into. We are the Jerusalem now, spiritually speaking, as followers of Jesus. And heaven is going to be a renewal of vows, you could say. It's a marriage ceremony of this long-standing marriage, this relationship between God and his people. This is where we will spend eternity. Jesus makes all things new. He makes all things right that were so wronged by Scripture. And this is our last passage, Revelation 21, 1 to 5. It's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, talking about what heaven will be like. Don't miss the marriage imagery here. And when it says the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that's us. That's where we will live for eternity. And Jesus is the groom. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's Jesus. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, check this out, I am making all things new. 
And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is what makes heaven heaven. Jesus, our groom, saying, I'm making all things new. I'm making our marriage relationship new. All those betrayals are in the past, and I'm making it new through Jesus, through our groom. And so today, I want to give you two invitations. One of them is if you've never said, I do, to Jesus. Jesus is proposing to you. He's literally on a knee saying, will you marry me? Can I be your God? Will you walk with me? Can I forgive you of your sins? Or are you going to stay in them and think you can handle it yourself? Say I do to Jesus today, if you never have. And the second invitation is to renew those marriage vows as his follower. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus who's in a marriage relationship with him, to go before him and say, show me my idolatry. Show me all the ways I chase after idols. All the sins I chase after that aren't of you. And give those to him today. Ask him to show you the injustices of the world, the injustices of our city, and say, Jesus, how can you use me? How can you use Mosaic Church to...